We'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt. And the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, 
and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, what a glorious message Peter preached. And what a glorious event took place 50 days after your glorious resurrection. And Father, we want Christ to receive all the glory He deserves for His holiness, for His divinity, for His humanity, for His selfless love, for everything that He did for us in taking on flesh and dying in our place. And Lord, we pray that You would deepen our understanding of who You are. Deepen our understanding of your purposes and your plan. That we might be all the more cemented in our convictions. And give clarity. Father, there's so much confusion, as you know, about this passage. And we pray that you would dispel the confusion. And bring crystal clarity to your word. Lord, even through my words. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I just prayed, this is, I think, one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And I will not be devoting my time this morning to all the various false teachings that have developed about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I think most of those false teachings could be um, categorized under the term Pentecostalism. And if you have burning questions about some of the errors associated with Pentecostalism, uh, some of the resources I would recommend, Justin Peters has a podcast, he has uh, messages on YouTube, Uh, he has devoted his life to kind of unmasking a lot of those errors 
great godly man. He, he serves in Montana. Um, in fact, some of the, I know a couple of families in this church have come to this church based on his recommendation. Um, and I would, I would recommend you t- check out his work. Uh, Todd Friel has some uh, good things uh, in his ministry, Wretched Radio. Uh, the first book I'd recommend that you read would be John MacArthur's Charismatic Chaos. It was written a few decades ago, but still very relevant um, in dealing with the theology behind Pentecostalism. I'd also just mention maybe half of the families in this church have come out of that tradition or have families that are um, immersed in it. And so there's a lot of people within this church that could answer some of those questions as well based upon their own experience. And if you have questions afterwards, too, I would, I would love to stick around and answer uh, what you might, tongues, or sorry, questions you might have uh, about tongues or healings or Pentecostalism and uh, what the Bible would teach on those things. But instead of discussing how this passage doesn't teach what many Pentecostals say it does, I want to focus on what it does teach. And I do think there's a time and a place for pastors to deal with false teachings. That's our responsibility. But our primary responsibility is to teach what the Bible does say uh, and its significance for us today. And I think if you're able to understand what this passage is teaching as you do come across various false teachings regarding it, it will make it much easier to, to see through the errors of them. Like the FBI counterfeiters, uh, they, uh, or experts, FBI counterfeit experts, that they're trained to, to know the, the real thing so well that they can spot a fake immediately. That's what I want you to be able to do with this passage. Last week, uh, we looked at the second part of chapter 1. Uh, which I described as God's recipe for revival. And we noted that after Christ ascended into heaven, the disciples did three things. They gathered together, they prayed together, and they listened to preaching. And these you could describe as the three ingredients to revival. But the most important ingredient to a revival is what we'll look at today, and that is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The... Uh, you can think of the Holy Spirit is to revivals as chocolate chips are to chocolate chip cookies. If you don't have chocolate chips in a cookie, they're not chocolate chip cookies. And if there's no Holy Spirit in a revival, it's not a revival. And that is what really makes this revival at Pentecost so powerful and so validating is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a very simple outline for the passage today. First, uh, the miraculous vent of the Holy Spirit is poured out. Then Peter preaches a, a message explaining what is taking place. And that's in verses 14 to 36. And then after uh, preaching that message, he makes a merciful exhortation to repent and be baptized. And that's in verses 37 to 41. So you have a miraculous event, a explanatory Exhortation, a, a, a miraculous, a masterful explanation, and thirdly, you have a merciful exhortation. Miraculous event, a masterful explanation, and a merciful exhortation. Let's look at the miraculous event first, beginning in verse 1. We see immediately uh, when this event takes place. It's on the day of Pentecost. Uh, that's what was called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. It was a festival that was established 
way back in the beginning of the law. We read about it in the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers. And it was a, a festival that celebrated the ingathering of the harvest. It was a, a, a feast celebrating all that God had provided for them in the months previous. And it foreshadowed the harvest of souls that God would reap at the end of the ages when God would pour forth his spirit. And Jesus hinted at this coming of the harvest of souls when he told his disciples in John 45, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. The, the, the fields were ready to be harvested, to be reaped. And that, that was a hint that very soon the Holy Spirit would be poured out and there would be a harvest of souls. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 2. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came with shock and awe. Seemingly out of nowhere, the disciples had gathered together in the room where they had been used to worshiping together, praying together, listening to preaching. It was a normal day. And then out of nowhere, it sounded like a hurricane had erupted in the house where they were worshiping. And then there was this visible tongues of fire that came and rested on each one of them. And being filled with the Spirit, it says, they began to speak in foreign tongues. And we know that they, these were foreign languages and not meaningless gibberish because the people who heard them speaking in these languages said, hey, they're speaking in our tongue from, from the nation which we grew up in, from which we're from. It would be like as if Petrus started hearing somebody speak in Romanian or Stacy in Russian or Ben in Russian. Um, they, they, they hear the, a foreign language being spoken and know that the people that are speaking that language had never spoken it before. I mean, it's even different than if I were to start speaking Spanish. I've had some Spanish training. It would be like somebody had no Spanish, no exposure, exposure to any uh, Spanish speaking or, or, or classes, and all of a sudden they were speaking fluently. So they, they understood something radical has happened, and they want an explanation. And the emphasis on the, the, the speaking in previously unknown foreign languages is what this text actually focuses on. Notice this. Look at verse 3. They were speaking in... Uh, there, there were tongues as a fire. Verse 4. They began to speak with other tongues. The Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 5. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. Speak in his own language. Verse 8. How is it that we hear each of them speak in our own language to which we're born? Verses 9 through 11 list the regions of the languages spoken. And then in verse 11, they say, we hear them in our own tongues. The repeated emphasis on language, nation, tongues is showing this is what's significant. There's something that the Lord wants to draw our attention to. These people are speaking in foreign languages, which should prompt the question, why? Why languages of all things? What is the significance of speaking in foreign tongues? And for that, that matter, why did God choose before giving this gift to have a visible representation of tongues, inflamed tongues, come and descend on each person who would be given that gift? What's the significance of the visible manifestation? What's the Lord want us to conclude? I mean, why didn't he just distribute the gift? 
Well, actually, the visible manifestation of flaming tongues actually tells us the significance of the gift. As you know, fire is a metaphor of judgment in the Bible. These are tongues of judgment. John the Baptist foretold of this coming judgment in his preaching. In John 3, 16-17, he said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice how he describes fire, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The judgment that was prophesied by John is what is being visibly demonstrated in these tongues of flaming fire that descend on each of the apostles. So how is speaking in foreign tongues a demonstration of God's judgment? Well, to understand that, is the very reason Peter begins his message in verse 14. Let's look at the masterful explanation that Peter gives for what has taken place in that miraculous event. And you'll notice that the audience of Peter's sermon is identified in verse 14. He says, all you who live in Jerusalem, all you who live in Jerusalem. So he's not just speaking to the, the people who had gathered in the upper room the 120 disciples that had been worshiping together. He's speaking to far more than that. He's not just talking to the people who have gathered from out of town, who are now hearing the apostles speak in foreign languages. Peter is specifically directing this message to all the Jews who live in Jerusalem. And we'll see why he's preaching specifically to them. He begins by dismissing the claim that the apostles were junk. And and he does this by simply pointing out it's only the third hour. That is, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. People don't get drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Unless they're alcoholics. But that's not typical. People get drunk at night. And so, Peter then clarifies what's taking place. Verse 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he quotes them the prophet Joel, chapter 2 through 28, verses 28 to 32. And it's just uh, cited right there in Acts 2. And what this passage in Joel describes is the coming day of the Lord. Now, we would call it Judgment Day today. It's the major theme that runs throughout all the minor prophets and many of the prophets. Uh, the minor prophets teach that the day of the Lord will consist of three particular things. First of all, it will consist of judgment upon the nations. So that Nobadiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It will also consist of a day of judgment for Israel. Described as the name is chapter 5, and also Zephaniah. It will also lead to peace and security for the nation of Israel. Isaiah, go ahead and flip that to that slide if you would, bud. So Joel speaks about that. So this is, this is the main uh, things that are going to take place on Judgment Day. This is what Israel was anticipating. And this was supposed to happen in conjunction with the pouring out of the Spirit. But other books of the New Testament make it clear that the day of the Lord is still yet to come. If you point that slide out, Isaiah. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has come. They're saying, it hasn't come yet. Don't be shaken thinking it has. First Thessalonians, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come in the future like a thief in the night. Also, 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are in it will be exposed. So this is a bit that still has not yet happened. Okay, well that brings up a big question. If that's the case, the day of the Lord has not yet come, why does Peter say that it has? Well, first of all, you will note that not everything that Joel lists, and even that Peter lists in Joel, has taken place. In fact, most of what the text that Peter cites still hasn't taken place. And that's noteworthy. What has taken place is precisely what Peter is trying to explain, what Peter's focusing on. And that's particularly verse 18. I will in those days pour forth my spirit. And most remarkably, when the spirit's poured out, poured out, it's marked by the apostles speaking in foreign tongues. So why only the giving of the spirit part and not the rest of what's described in Joel about the day of the Lord? Why is it just this one aspect of the day of the Lord that happens and why, when it happens, does it happen being accompanied with speaking in foreign languages? So only one part of the day of the Lord, and that one part is being marked by something very unique. Well, the answer to that question is actually the main point in Peter's message. It's because Israel crucified the Messiah that God sent to them, and they rejected him. And said they had no king but Caesar. We know that's Peter's main, or, or, yeah, Peter's main point. Because of what's said in verses 23 and verse 36. Twice. He no, makes note of that. When the nation rejected their Messiah. God turned his attention. To the Gentiles. And although. He would give his spirit to any Jew. Or any Gentile who would call upon the name of the Lord. He knew that most of the nation would continue to reject them. And that is the significance of tongues. God is now going to send the Holy Spirit that was promised to Israel. Israel's promised gift. And instead of giving it to the nation of Israel, he gives it to the Gentiles. The unholy ones. The ones that were supposed to be separate. Israel is supposed to be separate from. The ones who were unholy get the Holy Spirit, not the holy people of God. Who had the law, the tabernacle, the temple, all the commandments. Instead it goes to the pagans. Those who don't speak Hebrew, who don't read the law. And it's because the nation rejected their Messiah when he came. 
And that's what Peter explains in verses 22 to 35. Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. The one they had longed for and waited for. And the first evidence that he was, was the signs, miracles, and wonders that he performed. Isaiah, go ahead and go to that slide if you would. Peter notes this in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Right? God proved that Jesus was the Messiah through the miracles that he performed. And they're countless. The second evidence was that Jesus died. Verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So God made it clear, especially in Isaiah 53, that it was his plan that the Messiah would suffer on behalf of his people. In fact, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to that passage. It's well known, and I'm just going to cite a few portions that emphasize this aspect of the servant of the Lord's work. It was very clear that the, the servant of the Lord was the promised Messiah, and this is what God said the Messiah would do. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Right, so the Messiah wasn't just going to be a national hero who would rescue them from their oppressors. He would actually die in their place. Jesus, as John the Baptist prophesied, was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And precisely because he was the Lamb of God. Look at verse 24. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And this is actually the third evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. No mere man could escape death. But Jesus did because he didn't deserve death. He had done nothing wrong. He had followed the law perfectly and completely. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus wasn't a sinner. He had not sinned once, ever. And so death had no hold on him. He broke the bonds of death and thereby secured salvation and eternal life for any who would believe in him. And in verses 25 to 32, Peter then demonstrates that the resurrection of the Messiah was actually prophesied in the Old Testament, presuming he would not only suffer and die, but he would be resurrected. He notes this by quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he says that David clearly wasn't speaking of himself because David died. But Jesus didn't see corruption. 
He rose from the dead, even as it says in verses 31 to 32. And the fourth evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah was that he ascended into heaven. See this in verse 31 to 36. Peter here explains that since Jesus has ascended into heaven, now the Holy Spirit can come. Because he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has performed the work of the Messiah that God had wanted him to perform. He has cleansed his temple, his people. And now God himself can dwell in the cleansed temple that has been cleansed through his perfect blood. If the Messiah hadn't died and risen and ascended into heaven, there could be no cleansing. So Peter notes in verses 34 to 35 that not only the resurrection, but even the ascension of the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is in Psalm 110, verse 1. He says in verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Right? Christ, having ascended now, has poured forth His Spirit. So there's abundant evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jews were supposed to be looking for. Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him, is Peter's point. And that's why you don't have the Holy Spirit. It was God's intent to give you the Holy Spirit, but instead you crucified your Messiah. But He will give the Holy Spirit to anyone, Jew or Gentile, who cries out for God to forgive him and who repents from their sin. And this is why only a select few have received the Holy Spirit that was promised to all of Israel. The, 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 the Spirit was given to only a few Jews because only a few Jews believed. Only a few Jews followed Him. Only 120 were worshiping Christ. And those were the ones who received the Holy Spirit. But Peter is letting the Jews in Jerusalem now know that even though they crucified their Messiah, if they will repent and believe in Him, they can receive the Holy Spirit. But the fact that they're speaking in tongues shows that that gift is no longer just going to be given to Israel. But anyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew and Gentile. The judgment is seen in the speaking of foreign tongues because God is now giving even unholy Gentiles who never follow the law. He is giving them the Holy Spirit to indwell them personally. The gift that was promised originally to Israel, they will now see Gentiles possess. There was once a young man who decided that he wanted to make his way in the world. He wanted to start his own business. And so he went to his wealthy parents and asked them if they could give him some money to help him get his business started. But they wanted him to make his own way. 
And so they refused to give him anything. And, and, and in his anger and his bitterness, he then cut off all communication with them. And then tried to just make it on his own. And he struggled on his own for years. And his parents, wanting to be reconciled with him, continued to, to send him letters. Uh, but whenever he got a letter from them, he would immediately take the letter and throw it in the fire and, and have it burned. He wouldn't even respond to his sister's attempts to score, correspond with him because he knew her desire was to reconcile her brother with his parents. And yet dec- decades later, his sister was able to track him down and she found him struggling to get by in a small flat in London. And in grief, she informed him that a few years after he had com- cut off communication with his parents, that his parents both had caught tuberculosis. And had passed away. And before they had passed away, they had done everything they could to try and reconcile with their son. They would even offered in some of these letters to, for him to receive the majority of the inheritance that they, would, that they possessed. But of course, they, they, they never got word for him and they didn't know if he was alive or not. And so instead of receiving that inheritance, they gave everything that they owned to his sister. That which was, should have been his, they gave to her. And the news pierced the man to his heart, knowing that in his anger and his folly, he had squandered the gift that he had longed for all of these years. And now another possessed it. And this is the same news that hits the Jews in Jerusalem. They had squandered their gift because they didn't recognize the Messiah when he appeared. And that's why they ask what the question they do in verse 37. This brings us to the merciful exhortation of Peter. The Jews asked, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them in verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's still available. You can have Him. But you need to repent and be baptized. And you can possess it. Just as these Gentiles will be able to possess it. He tells them to repent and be baptized. Baptism just being an outward sign of their repentance. Right? John the Baptist called people to repentance and they would demonstrate that repentance by being baptized, signifying that they'd been cleansed of their sins, that they were a new man, now no longer living for themselves but for God. Peter says, repent and be baptized, showing to all that you are changed, that you are a follower of Christ. And remember, John called for that baptism's repentance and he said that after him would come one who would baptize in the Spirit. What the, Jesus would be greater in John, not just because he'd call for a baptism of repentance, but he would actually baptize people in the Spirit. And that's what's actually happening here in Acts 2. And Peter provides this assurance in verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. 
Peter assures them that they can receive the Spirit still because it's for you and for your children. But it's also for those who are far off. Referring to the Gentiles. And that's why Peter pleads with them, be saved from this perverse generation. And we can see that his words hit home. Because according to verse 41, in just one day, 3,000 Jews who had once yelled, crucify him, repent and are baptized. In chapter 1, we saw how God poured out his judgment upon Judas for rejecting Christ. And in chapter 2, we see the same thing. God judges the Jews for rejecting their Messiah. And because of their presumption, the Jews rejected him. And, and, and in doing so, they had forfeited the gift that God had promised to give them. And that's why Peter closes his message with the pronouncement that they crucified Jesus. They crucified Jesus. Now, can the same be said of you? Now, obviously, none of us here has crucified Christ because we weren't alive then. That was 2,000 years ago. But if you think about it, none of the Jews that Peter is preaching to crucified him either. Jesus was crucified by Romans. So why does he say that the Jews crucified him? It's because they rejected him. They said they had no king but Caesar. And effectually, the same is true today. When people hear the gospel, they hear the, the offer of salvation, the offer of forgiveness, and instead of receiving what Christ has offered to them, they refuse to repent because their sin is their king, not Christ. And they effectually yell, crucify him in their rejection. The author of Hebrews describes this sin this way. He says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author is saying that the people who refuse to repent from their sins effectually deny that Jesus is the son of God. They reject Christ because there's something more precious to them. And yet, as this, as this is clear in this passage, God still says that he is willing to forgive anyone who would repent and acknowledge Christ as their Lord. And so it, it begs the question, what is it that keeps you from surrendering your whole life to Christ today? What is it that's holding you back? 
What are you choosing over Christ? The Jews chose Caesar over Christ. Judas chose money. What's holding you back? Name it. What is your God? What is standing between you and repentance? You and salvation? What keeps you from loving God with all of your heart? What's holding you back? What is your God? What sin are you unwilling to repent from? Is it pornography? Is it an unwillingness to forgive somebody who has hurt you? Alcohol or drugs? Is it pride? Just an unwillingness to repent from the sin that's in your life? An unwillingness to to submit to those who are in authority over you? Whatever you are unwilling to repent from, that exposes what your God really is. And the people in this room might look across and think, that person, that one's a, that, that's a devout believer. But you know your heart. You know what's really going on. You know what you treasure. You know what you refuse to repent from. You know the commands that you ignore. That you sweep under the rug. That you justify. That you make excuses for. Whatever that sin is that you refuse to repent from, that exposes what your God really is. And what Peter wants you to know this day, what Christ wants you to know this day, is that even though you have rejected Him time and time again, if you would repent today and acknowledge Christ as Lord and turn from your sin, you will be saved. Set free, made holy, indwelt by God Himself. And if that is you, cry out to Him. Confess your sin. Put it to death. And turn and surrender your whole life over to Him. Let's pray. Father, You search us and You know us. You know all that we've done. You've known all that we've said. You've seen us in the darkness of our rooms as we have been enraged, as we have turned aside from You, as we have turned instead to the pleasures of this life, doing things that we know You hate. Lord, if there is, there is anyone here who is yet to surrender their life wholly and completely to you, that you would call them to yourself, open their eyes to, to, to trust in you fully. And if there is any Christian here who has refused to repent over time and, and harden their heart, that today would be the day they finally put sin that sin to death. Lord, none of us can do this on our own strength. We need Your grace. And so we pray that You would be abundantly gracious to each of us so that we leave all of our sin behind 
take up our cross and follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.